How will we fight and win this war? We will direct every resource at our command, every means of diplomacy, every tool of intelligence. He believed it. Our military believed it. Our military got chemical weapon suits on to protect them. But you were wrong. Oh my goodness, the intelligence was certainly wrong. In recent decades, public confidence in our institutions has declined. If you had known, you did not have I didn't know. Zawahiri greeted me and he said, I have very good news for you. Mr. Bin Laden has agreed to answer each one of your questions. If you had. I, I didn't. If you had. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no All idea. All the evidence provided by the U.S. and the U.K. regarding alleged weapons of mass destruction in Iraq were refuted by the inspectors themselves. What you know today can help you on things you're thinking about tomorrow. It can't help you with things you were thinking about back then. Poetry is bright vision made dark, a darkling vision made bright. It is what the early spring is saying about the deaths of winter. Poetry is eternal graffiti in the heart of everyone. It is the solace of the lonely, loneliness itself poetic. Words on the page of poetry are a code for human emotions. Paper may burn, but words will escape. I'm betting that a lot of you have had this happen to you. You need to know what time it is, and for some strange reason, there's an analog clock within view. You glance at it, and the second hand just doesn't move. You're stuck there in that one second for just long enough for your brain to fire off a, hey, wait a minute, before the hand thunderously and mercifully clacks to the next tooth in the gear. This is called chronostasis, and it's, as you might guess, a disconnect between what your eyes see and what your brain perceives. This disconnect happens as a side effect of our quick eye movement toward the clock, known as a saccade. Our brains are incredible things. They have the power to step in when we need them most. Sometimes this is successful, and we realize that the oven we're about to touch is quite hot, so we yank our hand away. Sometimes it's a bit slow on the draw, and we end up writing something like the ultimates, despite everything inside us screaming we shouldn't. In the case of the saccade and chronostasis, our brains are doing the best they can. Because of how we process a quick visual change, our brain disregards the inevitable blur from one image to the next and essentially backfills the time gap that would have been occupied by an out-of-focus image as our eyes adjusted with the in-focus image we've just moved to. We perceive this backfill as the sustained experience of the second image. Imagine you're reading The Ultimates and, understandably, growing bored. You look up at the clock and notice that the second hand isn't moving. For this brief infinity, you panic that you're trapped forever in a hell of your own making, and you have nothing to blame but your abject hubris for thinking you alone could enjoy the ultimates. I want to talk a little bit about the sustained experience of Mark Miller despite having claimed on several occasions to maintain a distance between his personal politics and his superhero work, Miller's, quote, radical progressivism characterizes much of his catalog. Miller watched as the modernization policies of then-UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's new right put his father and most of his community out of work. Many of them were never employed again. In his earliest major piece, The Savior, Miller presents this free market 
as a charlatan god full of devastating, unkept promises of security, wealth, and happiness, which is totally fair and accurate. In 1996, for one tongue-in-cheek issue only of the continuing series Swamp Thing, Miller recast an environmentalist ally of the titular Swamp Thing as a hard-hitting Reaganite American cop, with all the gay-bashing, wife-hitting, and anti-communism-ing that is so very much the staple of that type of caricature. In his 2013 book, Jupiter's Legacy, two patriarchal superheroes fight over lofty ideals not typically associated with brawling Boy Scouts. An America-loving stasis versus anti-capitalist progress, albeit born of singular and nefarious authoritarianism, and yes, it's shallow and tiresome. The through line of all of this is that Miller's hatred for right-wing politics hasn't seemed to solidify into a coherent theory for left-wing change. Much like the chronostasis between the comic and the clock, the young Miller's urgent shift to focus on the problems of the right may have left him stuck in the reaction to Thatcher's devastation of his family and home for an impossibly long time, unable to progress to an appropriate and measured response. He's trapped in the lusty spectacle of a 15-year-old's vengeful imagination, and, as we'll see, we're trapped in there with him. What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire, or the rise of the zombies, or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, uh... This ain't my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or McIntyre or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. <laughs> Hank Pym, known more commonly as Ant-Man or Giant-Man, is, historically speaking, a big piece of shit. Hank Pym himself debuted in the old Marvel comic Tales to Astonish, number 27, in 1962. In it, we're introduced to Henry Pym, a bitter scientist driven by the chip on his shoulder to prove to his skeptical academic colleagues that his shrinking and growing potions actually work. His ideas for their usefulness range from shipping conveniences to aiding infiltrating armies. An interesting insight at the time, considering how tense the U.S. relations were with Cuba just then. Indeed, this issue came out, most likely, just a month or so before the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of that year. It's not hard to imagine that the writers were influenced by Cold War propaganda, obviously. Anyway, our intrepid misanthrope doses himself with shrink potion and ends up the size of, what else, a ant. Amongst a shit ton of actual ants. He escapes his predicament and destroys what remains of his size-changing potions, never to shrink or grow again. For eight months. Then, in Tales to Astonish number 35, he appears for the second time and has a 180-degree change of heart. This time, though, he has a growing interest in ants. When some goons sent by definitely not Khrushchev break into Pym's lab and accost him for an unrelated anti-radiation formula, he foils their attempt by donning for the first time the now-familiar Ant-Man helmet and red jumpsuit. The character first appeared as Giant Man in Tales to Astonish number 49 in November 1963. Now, I know what you're thinking. Something else very important and relevant to this podcast happened in November 1963. Without this particular event, we wouldn't be here right now. I'd have never had the idea to do a podcast with sound design and music and outlandish-sounding claims that straddle the line between science fiction and historical reality. You're right. In November 1963, Doctor Who premiered on the BBC. But that's not why we're here. Please keep your Doctor Who enthusiasm in check. 
Anyway, in Tales to Astonish number 49, Hank realizes that he can only grow to 12 feet tall instead of the 60 feet tall he can grow to in The Ultimates before becoming unable to move his body. I blame inflation. Speaking of lusty spectacles, the issue opens with a rather intimate view of Giant Man. From our firm position on the ground, a glare from the sun mercifully visible between his legs obscures his leather-clad grundle as he steps over us and a group of women, probably costing them thousands of dollars in therapy somewhere down the line. With the coyness befitting such a rogue, he acknowledges their presence with a simple Afternoon, ladies. Janet, filming the endeavor from a picnic spot she set up on a nearby hill, teases him by calling him a ham, and the two share a sweet moment discussing what kind of serial killer the leather giant man costume makes Hank look like, and for my money, it's the kind whose victims are things like dignity and self-respect. They briefly mention the disgusting caveat that neither of them should eat while in a state of altered size, probably for obvious reasons. To Hank Pym, the opportunity to transmute his research into actionable superhero-dom represents a transformation of self. He rhetorically asks Jan how much this is going to make up for never being picked for sports teams in school. She doesn't indulge him in whatever power fantasy he's pursuing and instead remarks that she sees this new team as an opportunity for the pair of them to start fresh with their relationship. This is an admirable ambition for her, given how world-rocking the context must be. They're probably hardly afforded any opportunity to see each other. Sure enough, their potentially heartfelt moment is interrupted by a text message alerting them to the fact that Captain America has been found and is currently thawing. I hate to give too much credit to Miller, but this is a pretty decent foreshadowing of future tensions. Turning the page, we encounter Nick Fury and Tony Stark standing around in a strangely dark room overlooking the operating theater in which Bruce Banner is currently reviving the frozen Captain America. Score one for Banner, I suppose. They're discussing the significance of the find. Nick Fury opines that it's a signal that they're on the right track. And Tony Stark, whom I'll remind the minority of listeners who haven't polluted themselves with such knowledge, is the billionaire industrialist who clads himself in computerized armor and calls himself Iron Man, mentions that the recovery of Captain America is almost literary in its gravitas, and remarks that he's glad that he has 50% of the merchandising rights. Please forgive me, because I'm about to spend a lot of time on this exchange. With a total revenue to date of $2.55 billion, Captain America clocks in as the 141st highest grossing media franchise of all time. It doesn't sound super impressive when contextualized like that, but consider that that's not including his appearances or associated merchandise from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, again, drew heavily from The Ultimates. Most impressive indeed. The MCU sits in the number nine spot of highest grossing media franchises, with a cool 38 billion under its belt so far. That's really exciting. Fun fact, the Walt Disney Company owns five of the top 10 highest grossing media franchises. The other five are either Japanese or Harry Potter. Since Disney now owns Marvel, it's probably germane to talk about how they were producing some of their merchandise just five years prior to the publication of this comic. In the Disney factories and the contractors' factories, the quota is set so high that the workers can only earn the minimum wage. This is not a Disney factory. Disney would not let us into their factories. Yet these workers make three times what the Disney workers earn. According to a 1996 report by the National Labor Committee, garment workers in Haiti who were employed by Disney that year were paid per garment they produced an average of one-half of one percent of the sale price of those garments. 
In 2022, most Disney-themed shirts you can purchase from their website sell for somewhere between $20 and $60. Roughly adjusted for inflation, that would be about $10 and $32 in 1996. So, if a worker in Haiti produced a t-shirt that would be sold at Disneyland for somewhere between $10 and $32, they were likely to receive between 5 and 16 cents for that shirt. Per the NLC report, they were paid on average 7 cents a garment. That's only 13 cents in 2022 money. Disney's argument is that the cost of living in Haiti is very low, so the purchasing power of the pitiful wages is much higher. This may be true for certain aspects of Haiti's economy, but Haiti at the time imported 70% of what it consumed, and food cost no less than it did in the U.S. Let's talk about food for just a second. It's pretty important, right? To humans? Why did Haiti have to import so much food? One word. Bill Clinton. Two words. Bill Clinton's tariffs. What is a tariff? A tariff is a tax that a country places on imported goods. It's used to protect the domestic production of certain goods against cheap imports. Beginning in 1944, after the Bretton Woods Agreement, the U.S. and other capitalist nations essentially strong-armed mostly non-Soviet-aligned countries into abolishing high tariffs in the name of free trade. Free trade, they argued, led to peace. There are countless examples of this going wrong, or right depending on whether or not you're a monster, but let's focus on Haiti. In the mid-90s, the Clinton administration and the International Monetary Fund, created incidentally by the Bretton Woods Agreement, bullied Haiti into dropping a high tariff it had on rice. Against its better judgment, Haiti did so, and cheap imported rice immediately flooded Haitian markets, putting countless Haitian rice farmers out of work and creating a wave of impoverished beggars in the cities. Haiti's rice industry will probably never recover. It's worth noting, too, that much of that cheap imported rice came from Arkansas, just like the president who traded it. Listen, I don't know what kind of a place this is, but you must have some kind of law here. This and earlier free trade disasters from the 1980s pretty much deliberately destroyed the livelihoods of agricultural workers to force them to work in the island's burgeoning garment industry. Per a senior staff lawyer at the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, the policies of international financial institutions, quote, ultimately facilitated the replacement of critical subsistence agriculture in Haiti with a garment industry that exploits cheap labor and prioritizes foreign interests over long-term rights-based development. So now, instead of growing their own rice, Haitians make Iron Man and Captain America t-shirts. Is the situation better in Haiti today? Only relatively. In fact, back in February of 2022, thousands of Haitian garment workers protested to bring their daily wage from the equivalent of $5 a day to $15 a day. But considering how the wealth gap between the richest and the poorest has skyrocketed in just the last two years, and remembering that billionaires' wealth is generated solely by underpaying their workers to increase the profit margin on their products, it's difficult to imagine that labor wages have kept up with soaring inflation. Here's something else to cogitate over. In 2001, the Walt Disney Company reported a revenue of $25 billion, with their total assets amounting to $44 billion. According to the rage-inducing conversation between Tony and Fury in the last issue, Tony Stark is worth $350 billion on paper in 2002. That's $570,412,451,361.87 in 2022 money, just for some context. You're dealing with the largest pool of illegal money in the world. Now, I'm no accountant, 
but a company's total reported assets are necessarily going to be larger than its net worth since you have to subtract their total liabilities from those assets to get that net worth. Which puts Tony's $350 billion net worth at at least eight times the size of Disney's in 2001. You have to imagine how many people in the Ultimate Universe free trade has impoverished just so that Tony can be rich enough to be charitably labeled, as he puts it, eccentric. After Tony remarks about his ownership of intangible assets to be amortized, see, I looked up some stuff and remembered the words, Fury peers back down into the operating theater and says that Banner must feel like he's reviving Santa Claus. On the top of the next page, Banner's face sharpens into focus as a presumably cold and groggy Steve Rogers regains consciousness. Banner welcomes him and introduces him to Tony Stark and Nick Fury, who are now standing behind Banner. Also behind Banner are at least five heavily armed soldiers aiming very large rifles directly at Captain America. Banner acknowledges this and assures the Cap'n that he's among friends. Cap then asks about the Nazi nuclear facility he was sent in to sabotage in the first issue. Stark assures him that he, quote, neutralized it, which is sort of suspicious, and anyone who knows anything about Operation Paperclip will understand why. Anyway, they reveal to Captain America that he's been in the ice for 57 years. And here, I have to complain about the layout of the comic. Because if it had been just ever so slightly different, this coming gag could have been very effective. Fury tells Captain America that he's been out for over half a century in the bottom right panel of the left page. Since this isn't a Japanese comic, we do indeed read it from left to right, meaning that the next panel is at the top of the right page beside it. The whole tableau is visible to us as soon as we turn to it. This isn't great here, because the next panel is a shot of the hall outside Captain America's recovery room, right as the hurled bodies of two of the soldiers who'd been brandishing their rifles tear the door out of its frame. It's a wonderfully dry moment that demonstrates Mark Miller's keen eye for the cinematic. He truly does understand that comics are a visual medium, something that sets the great writers apart from the merely good ones, usually. The effect is a little bit destroyed, however, thanks to the layout of the panels I mentioned previously. Because the sight gag is on a page immediately visible, there's a good chance the reader will have it spoiled for them as soon as they turn to it. Had the hallway panel been on a page that needed to be turned to, there would be no possibility of the reader seeing it without context, and I wouldn't have had to expend 254 words on a minor annoyance. In the eruption of violence, Captain America calls Nick Fury Fritz and accuses everyone of being Nazi actors who didn't do their homework because he grew up with the highest ranking black officer in the US military. And that's probably true. I'm sure some of Steve's best friends are black. Captain America leaps out the window and quite literally hurdles toward freedom just as Hank and Jan show up. Hank grows to his giant man size and pins the captain to the ground with a perfectly droll, the situation's well in hand. Banner, now outside, mentions that this traumatic episode should be proof to anyone around that he's no longer the Hulk. And hey, the guy who couldn't crack the super soldier serum and thought he'd given the actual super soldier enough meds to keep him calm needs a win right now. Okay, before I get started on the next section, raise your hand if you know what a welfare state is. My goodness, I hope some of you actually did it. Put them back down because you know I can't see you. Since you know what a welfare state is already, you can just mute this part and turn it back on when we're done. For the rest of you, a welfare state is a government 
with concrete programs and networks ostensibly meant to provide care, housing, or even income for its citizens, and sometimes even non-citizens. This sounds a lot like communism, right? Yes, it does, but it's not communism. A welfare state, however robust, still operates economically in the capitalist mode of production, meaning that wealth is accumulated and then distributed by a handful of private owners. The working class in a welfare state still do not, as a rule, own the factories, tools, and indeed industries that keep the society and government functioning. The United States of America, obviously far from being communist, could be considered a welfare state only by using the most generous of definitions. Except, of course, for one major demographic. The military. The benefits are, are outstanding. The 30 days leave right off the bat is better than you're going to get anywhere on the outside. When you come in to a job on the outside, you have to be there at least a year before you even get a week got your GI Bill, the Army will send you to college, and he'll pay you not too many places you can get a good deal like that. A man can come in the Army and live on nothing, because everything he needs is there. I'm sure many of you have heard of the GI Bill, the post-World War II legislation that radically transformed not only veterans' benefits, but indeed the essence of what most people refer to as the middle class. Of course, there's no such thing as the middle class, realistically. There's just various levels of exploited working class. Anyway, the GI Bill, or the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, is famous for sending millions of U.S. veterans to either college or some kind of vocational training. But it also had provisions for low-cost mortgages, low-interest business loans, and unemployment compensation. It was also super racist, like literally the actual definition of racism in that it further structurally cemented white veterans' economic power over those soldiers who didn't look like they did. According to The Rise of the Military Welfare State by Jennifer Middlestott, a major aspect of the GI Bill that rarely gets discussed is how it legitimized government provision of education and housing for civilians or at least white civilians, but that's my editorial and not hers. Regardless of their spillover into civilian life, the social welfare entitlements of military service only grew from the GI Bill on. A quote from Middlestadt, quote, For more than 10 million Americans who volunteered for active duty after 1973 and their tens of millions of family members, the military provided an elaborate social and economic safety net, medical and dental programs, housing assistance, subsistence payments, commissary and post-exchange privileges, tax advantages, education and training, dozens of family welfare programs, child care, and social services ranging from financial counseling to legal aid. This basically means that the U.S. military operates its own self-contained welfare state. The joke during the Cold War was that America was fighting the communists with the most socialist weapon it had. <laughs> we shouldn't fall into the trap of equating the two, however. Again, the fundamental difference between a welfare state and a communist one is that the welfare state exists to subsidize the cost of living for a laboring class that is at the mercy of an owning class, while in a communist society, the laboring class owns the productive industries, and has truly democratic control over them. We went over this in great detail in Season 1, so go check that out if you're curious to learn more. Regardless, the joke is still pretty funny, and more importantly, it illustrates that, for a while, the U.S. government was happy to subsidize the lives of people willing to fight to expand the imperial powers of its ruling class, whether those people knew it or not. In fact, it has used this system of material rewards as a recruiting tool for decades. A tool that was honed to a sharper edge by our boy Ronald Wilson Reagan, who cut civilian entitlements in favor of a revitalized GI Bill. 
It's likely thanks in part to these entitlements and social programs that Captain America's old sidekick Bucky Barnes was able to live the life he has since that fateful day his best friend rode a rocket to the ocean in 1944. Listen, I give this comic a lot of shit. You know it, I know it, and hopefully somewhere out there Mark Miller can feel it each time it happens. But this coming scene is actually pretty nice, and sweet, and well handled. And you can imagine what it must do to me to admit that I was even the tiniest bit emotionally invested in a scene about U.S. Army dudes who are sad. Anyway, in the next scene, Nick Fury has picked the grayest, dreariest day to bring Steve Rogers to reconnect with Bucky, who's now very old, is married to Steve's former fiance Gail, and is riddled with cancer. Does showing someone talking about cigarettes earlier count as foreshadowing for cancer? Chekhov's lucky strike? Bucky, who knew they were coming, answers the doorbell and manages to have a polite back and forth with Fury without acknowledging Steve. He mentions that he and Gail watch over a couple of the grandkids three days a week so that one of his daughters can go back to work, and he stops himself mid-ramble to turn around and lock eyes with Captain America. In a really just nice moment, Steve says, It's me, you numbskull. And then the two go in for a hug as Steve chastises him, gently, for all those years of smoking. But something sticks out to me about this. Bucky and Gail are plenty comfortable, but Sharon's got to work the kind of hours that keep her away from her kids. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into some meager details here, but it does make me think about something else that was happening to the military entitlements right around the time this comic was taking place. And with Donald Rumsfeld well into his ideological crusade, what else could be happening to these benefits but their imminent privatization? The Cold War basically ended on December 26th, 1991. And it wasn't long after that that the new free market ghouls in the Clinton administration, out from the shadow of the Soviet menace, began to do what they do best, slash costs and make money. Clinton and Gore went to Wall Street to begin outsourcing military support services to private companies. There's a quote from the time that rings particularly hollow if we're to believe it led to Bucky and Gail having to watch their daughter's children so she can work. Quote, the army takes care of its own so they can learn to take care of themselves. As should be very obvious to any of you who've made it this far into a communist podcast, Privatization pretty much means that the soldiers and their families will have to pay for their benefits instead of having them subsidized through taxes. Since private corporations can only survive by increasing their profits, this necessarily leads to a degradation in quality of services provided. Whether through deliberate reduction in offerings or through the thinning of staff available to provide the services being offered. This was absolutely in line with the Clinton administration's ending of welfare as we know it for civilians. Boot as many people as you can off government entitlement programs to increase the population of people who now have no choice but to sell their labor and their bodies to corporations who will pay them as little as possible and offer as few benefits as they can. And I want to be very clear. I am not asking you to respect nor to pity the U.S. Armed Forces. I've included this brief examination of this particular form of exploitation and austerity to demonstrate that not even the people our leaders coerce and manipulate into serving in their imperial expansion forces are safe from their callous parasitism, regardless of how lionized they are in our nationalist propaganda. Anyway, sorry to ruin this nice moment of the comic. Also, Gail won't come downstairs to see Steve because she's ashamed of how old she's gotten. Like, specifically, she doesn't want him to see what she looks like now. Such nuance and depth. Later that day, 
Rogers and Fury are in a cemetery going over what has happened to Steve's family in the decades between 1944 and 2002. And let me tell you, it's a lot. His father died in 1954 of a heart attack. His mother died 13 years later from complications due to chronic lung obstruction. Five years after that, his brother Douglas Lincoln Rogers, cute Mark, real cute, died of a cerebral hematoma. Douglas's son was shot dead by a narcotics officer. And the comic doesn't give us a year for when that happened, but now I'm just imagining the nephew of Captain America was a mercenary working hand-in-hand -hand with the Contras in Nicaragua and got shot by a local yokel cop who didn't realize he was trafficking drugs for the government. We're not quite done with the scene in the graveyard yet, but before we cover its conclusion, I want to talk about superheroes. There are precious few things that Mark Miller and I have in common. A general disdain for right-wing politics is one of them, but obviously that avenue is a dead end. Another, more endearing one, at least for me, is a burning, clear-eyed, unabashed, and surprising as it may seem, deeply uncynical love for superheroes. I love them to my core. The child in me can connect to the comforting simplicity of having the right power for the job. There's a reassuring joy in the party that's objectively correct, absolutely wailing on an adversary of unquestionable evil and winning every time. Of course, there are more nuanced superhero stories. You can call those the grown-up ones, if you like. I never will. But in the end... Superheroes win. They fit, however messily, into the slots carved for them by writers and artists, and complete a tableau of conviction and integrity. In a word, they are symbols. Now, a lot of this comes not from any deliberate romantic or ageless notion of the superhero, but rather the fact that it's a medium that can be perpetuated endlessly. Any team of writers and artists can take over any superhero book and generate content, if you will, regardless of the relationship those characters or those creatives have with an audience at large. This content has morphed and warped of its own accord and has even been deliberately curtailed or distorted throughout the years. It's all out there begging for critique, literary or dismissive. It's a retroactive mythologization as if all mythology weren't retroactive. Some writers love superheroes, and some writers merely use them. And the latter distinction is by no means a condemnation on my part. Mark Miller loves superheroes, even if, as The Ultimates suggests, his knack for deconstructing them doesn't always highlight what others might consider to be their platonic essences. Comics legend Grant Morrison has spoken of and written about numerous occasions in which they and Miller would spend hours on the phone together when they both worked for DC just shooting the shit about superheroes. In my opinion, it's Mark Miller's love of superheroes that translates to his trusty utility belt of symbols. Miller understands the power of conveyance and implication that symbols have possibly to the point of relying on them at the expense of the plot. Couple this understanding with a knack for the cinematic, and you've got your er hitmaker. This is how Miller can get away with the conclusion to the scene in the cemetery. Fury offers up a reunion between Steve Rogers and his remaining relatives. Steve declines, saying that there's no point to it. Everything he loved is gone. In a turn for the maudlin, Fury says, Not everything, Captain. And the two look up to where Fury is gesturing. The sun is breaking through the clouds behind an American flag that fills most of the final panel on the page. Thank you. Good night. And God bless America. The Ultimates is, to put it mildly, a contentious book. There are, essentially, four camps one might find oneself in regarding one's relation to the material. One, 
you think the book is in genuine support of a post-9-11 Bush doctrine hegemony, and you think it successfully conveys that. 2. You think the book is in genuine support of a post-9-11 Bush doctrine hegemony, and you think it unsuccessfully conveys that. 3. You think the book is a satirical takedown of a post-9-11 Bush doctrine hegemony, and you think it successfully conveys that. 4. You think the book is a satirical takedown of a post-9-11 Bush doctrine hegemony, and you think it unsuccessfully conveys that. If pressed, I would say that I fall into the fourth camp, with the caveat that the book's failures are not just in presentation, but also in some wildly missed shots, which I'd elaborate more on, but that's pretty much the entire point of this season. It's because Miller misses these shots, and indeed often aims for the wrong targets, that I'd argue that the book more realistically falls somewhere between Camps 2 and 4, and is just generally unsuccessful overall. So the real question, above whether it's satirical or serious, is does it really matter? Does it still count as satire if no one gets it? Does it still count as serious if it's hilariously ineffective? Sure, to the extent of intent, but real-world outcomes are pretty much impossible to quantify, especially if it's as difficult to separate the two as it is in The Ultimates. Which brings us back to the flag. Right next to the sun-drenched stars and bars, is a dialogue box leading us to the next page. In it, someone is asking, are we really paying these guys $500 a head just to wave a flag? Turns out it's Nick Fury asking Betty Ross, Bruce Banner's recently separated wife, as they smile and wave down a red carpet to a fancy gala. Betty, who's been promoted to Chief of Communications for the Ultimates Project, responds, It's a small price to pay for looking good on television, Nick. This launch party is being broadcast in 42 languages, and the last thing the world wants to see is a bunch of pimple-faced fatties cheering on their favorite super team. And come on! That's a direct dig at the readers! It's also worth noting Miller's very ungenerous characterization of one of the only women to work with the team, especially one whose literal job is public relations. And to further dig Miller's anti-SJW hole, Fairy, Furry, fuck, Fury parries with the homophobic retort, well, you ain't the one justifying half a million bucks on male models in the next budget review, Betty, honey. Ross then chastises Fury for making her feel like she only got the job of head of PR because her father is five-star general Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross, a major player in the non-Ultimate Marvel Universe in general, and the Hulk comics specifically. To his credit, Fury merely exceeds, without a hint of protest. He then asks her what she thinks her old man would have made of all of this and begins to list all the extravagances of the project. He mentions the 5,000 technicians, the 10,000 support troops, a headquarters designed by Norman Foster, ultimate celebrity sighting number three, and this evening's star-studded gala. He claims that this whole affair feels more like Hollywood than the launch of a new defense initiative. Betty retorts with, the difference between us and Hollywood, General, is that I'm going to make the Ultimates really famous. Where does this fall on the serious to satire spectrum? Impossible to tell. The tone is earnest, despite, or possibly because of, the homophobic, comedic relief. Ross and Fury are having a genuine conversation about the image of the Ultimates, and neither of them are by any means opponents of the project. They want this to happen, they believe it's morally correct and necessary. And they're essentially discussing how it might best proceed. It would be tough to convince me that Miller doesn't also believe in the right of a state-sponsored international terror response unit. He just doesn't mind lampooning one he perceives as being conservative. 
Turning the page, we realize that that previous scene was essentially a cold open. And now we're presented with the actual establishing shot, a two-page spread showing the Triskelion, Shields' flying amphibious fortress, resting in the waters of Upper Bay Manhattan. For probably tonight only, the spotlights are all at their brightest for a celebratory and civilian affair. It's honestly a little strange to devote two whole pages to such a detailless shot, so one can only assume that it's meant to highlight just how many resources have been sunk into this project. It's a lot. If that's a macro example of ruling class ostentation, the beginning of the next page is a more personal one. In the middle of this black tie affair, Tony Stark is accosting Bruce Banner about his relationship with, quote, his tasty little ex, Betty Ross. And probably to Banner's horror, it gets pretty personal. After Tony asks him whether or not one of them role plays as Betty's five-star general father during sex, Banner flatly replies, no, and corrects Tony by explaining that he and Betty are merely separated. Then he reminds Tony that Tony is, in fact, here with Jennifer Tilly, ultimate celebrity sighting number four. Tony concedes that, yes, he is here with Jennifer Tilly, but explains like a knowing father that one must keep one's options open with these Hollywood heartbreakers. He opines that they're fickle and might be on you like, quote, Oprah on a Twinkie, ultimate celebrity sighting number five, which, come on, do we really need that? There are ways to communicate that Tony is a jerk without throwing something as low bar as body shaming into the mix. And really, before anyone dismisses this criticism because Oprah is a billionaire, do you think Oprah is going to read this comic? And if she did, what then? This is as nice an opening as I'm going to get to opine about something that simply bothers me body-shaming billionaires, being ableist towards billionaires, or rhetorically attacking billionaires in any way other than from a class perspective is less than helpful. If they were to see and be hurt by such criticism from you or anyone else on the internet, they could just go change whatever it is about themselves you just denigrated. They have the money and the time. But we have comrades who also have body types that don't conform to manufactured standards of beauty, or who have physical or mental needs that aren't met by our medical, educational, economic, or architectural infrastructure. You know what they don't have? The money or the time to change those things should they be so inclined. Logically, the only people you might hurt with such criticisms are people on our side. Mark Miller does not have a great track record when it comes to issues of justice that aren't traditionally understood to be political. Like a perpetually edgy teenager, Miller doesn't seem to understand that feelings and emotional comfort are their own brand of justice, however ephemeral. To put it in tangentially superhero terms, Miller apparently has little conception of, or maybe compunction against, punching down. Apparently forgetting all about Jennifer Tilly, Tony is pulled away from his conversation with Bruce by a reporter he finds attractive and whom he then promises to spend all evening with. As he leaves, he commands his butler Jarvis to serve Bruce another drink, a gesture which Jarvis, probably already burned from having his vacation cut short in the first issue, responds to with an acerbic contrasting of himself and Tony as lowly butler and superhero aristocracy, respectively. And for real, that's probably going to be the best class analysis we get from Mark Miller out of this entire book. Cut to Hank Pym, Jan Pym, and Nick Fury talking to none other than the man of the hour, the head honcho, the commandant, the grifter-in-chief, George W. Bush. Their conversation is little more than a setup for W to interrogate Fury about Captain America, 
But it does show an interesting juxtaposition between Banner, whom we've seen less than enthused with his own relationship to the super soldier's history, and the Pims, who are here describing Captain America-themed weapons and vehicles of war with the excitement of children, even being so blatant as to compare it all to Hank's old G.I. Joe collection. Commentary on the attitude towards war that the U.S. was taking at the time, or merely a way for Miller to relate to the characters? The world may never know. What we can know for certain, though, is his general disdain for power, particularly when it's tied to personality. And boy howdy, did George W. Bush have a lot of personality. In a now-famous close-up, George Bush finally gets to ask Captain America a very important question. Well, what's your verdict on the 21st century, Captain America? Cool or uncool? Where Miller stumbles, of course, like the 15-year-old boy raging at his father's unemployment with no sense of potency or agency, is in his response to power. In The Ultimates, his complete lack of prescription for the problems of the right turns would-be forces for good into sycophants at worst and juvenile libertarian reactionaries at best. Like last episode, we cut to another final full-page reveal of Captain America. But this time, he's decked out in his new costume replete with weird Kevlar scales on the shoulders and sorely lacking in the traditional mercury wings on the cowl. He's saluting the president with his back turned to a crowd of absolutely ecstatic reporters and photographers as he responds, Cool, Mr. President. Very cool. Once again, faithful listeners, thank you for joining us at our new time. We're excited to air at the end of the week now to give you at least a smidgen of relief after a teeth-grinding trudge through capitalist hell. We've got another Patreon supporter to thank. Huge shout-out to Adam E. for keeping this show going. Now, with that happy business unfortunately behind us, it's time we turn to serious matters. The annual potluck is approaching. But not to worry, we trepidatiously believe this year's to be safe. As devastating as it is not to know Bud's whereabouts nor his status, we can take small comfort in the fact that we won't be subjected to his cooking. Please bring what you can to the Parenti statue in the park, and we'll celebrate another year of resisting bourgeois influence. If you can't make it in person, please feel free to write a nice note and send it to the show's email address, collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com. Follow the show on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at CAComicsPod. That's comics with an X. And, as always, tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective Collective Action Action Comics. Comics.